I'm Max Barnett, Commercial Strategy Lead at Delta Tray. And I'm David Kushnan, Head of Content at Leaders. And this is The Blueprint, the podcast for straightforward strategic thinking in sport. Over the course of this series, brought to you by Delta Tray and Leaders, we'll be exploring how to build and execute great strategy and how to avoid doing strategy badly. We'll hear from some of sport's leading strategists about how they think, plan and execute strategy with flexibility, bringing projects or partnerships to life and injecting creativity. And we'll take you inside some of sport's most recognisable organisations for real-life examples of where strategy worked and sometimes where it didn't. Welcome to The Blueprint. Welcome along to The Blueprint and a pleasure once again to be sharing the Leaders slash Delta Trace strategic broom cupboard with you, Max. Good to see you. How are you? I'm good, DC. Thanks for making room for me in the broom cupboard. Absolutely. Uh, We have got another super show lined up today. Let's immediately discover who we are speaking to on The Blueprint. I'm Nick Bourne. I'm the Chief Strategy Officer at ATP Media. Okay, Nick Bourne, ATP Media. This should be a lot of fun. ATP Media, formed in 1999, provides the centralised exploitation and host broadcast production for worldwide TV and digital broadcast rights across the ATP Tour, men's professional tennis, of course. Nick, right at the heart of that action, in his third year now at ATP Media, he is responsible for the organisation's build-out of new services and capabilities built on centralised data, content and platforms, supporting the wider business's development. Prior to that, Chief Commercial Officer at Copper 90, working with them from pre-funding startup phase to multinational profitable industry leader that built an audience entirely outside of live rights. He is also a presumably proud member of the Leaders Under 40 alumni from the class of 2018. How's your tennis, Max? Looking forward to this? Tennis poor. Uh, excitement about speaking to Nick about what he does and how they go about realising the opportunity of having, I think, over a billion fans out there. Um, Yeah, really looking forward to this one, DC. Let's get into it. Let's hit the strategic court. This is Nick Bourne and this is The Blueprint. Nick, fantastic to have you with us on The Blueprint. Thanks for joining us. Tell us, first of all, a little bit about this role of yours at ATP Media, Chief Strategy Officer. What does that actually mean? Uh, so first, uh, ATP Media is the commercial um, uh, media arm of the ATP Tour. So we make, distribute and sell all of the all of the live pictures um, on behalf of the ATP Tour. The Chief Strategy Officer role there is really a, a sort of a transformation job as we move from uh we're a service business to the to the ATP tour and its and its sort of stakeholders but it's really moving from a, a linear TV uh, principal customer base to a streaming plus customer base effectively and that creates I sort of call it like an engine job and a gearbox job so the engine job is rather than running just on linear it's like we've got a sort of running on uh streaming plus um 
customers and their platforms. And then the Gearbox job is really how we process that content. So it's not just live, it's live and it's non-live and it's uh, all of the ancillary content and, and services that work around that. Excellent. Um, and Nick, this is a, a podcast about strategy. And before we, we dive in um, and start talking about your specific uh, role, we often like to ask guests around definition, because obviously, uh, as we are talking about definition can really, uh, definitions of strategy and terminology can really trip people up. So it'd be really interesting to hear about your definition of strategy. Uh, well, uh, I'll quote the answer I didn't give when I was interviewing as a strategy consultant, which is it's the ex post rationalization of success, which is a rather sort of smarmy answer to what is strategy. But what what it's sort of, um, uh, it's effectively understanding a situation, it's then plotting a course through that amid the sort of the, the changing variables and uncertainties that go within there, um, uh, the setting of, of goals and attempting to reach them. It's a nice answer. Can you boil that down to three words? Uh, yes. So I would say it's about understanding. So you need to, and obviously that doesn't ever stop. Um, so it's understanding the presenting case of the business or the industry that you're in. Uh, it's then um, sort of planning and budgeting and all of those other sort of resource gathering that you need to do rather than just saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to run over there. And then the last piece of it is actually executing, which is the most important part of it. And why I, I don't really like the word strategy because it's often overused um, uh, and, and overplayed. And really, it's all about sort of judging it on outputs and outcomes rather than plans and uh, and ideas, if you see what I mean. And you mentioned as a kind of strategy consultant, are there any frameworks or methodologies that you've employed or uh, evolved over over your time or is it dependent on the scenario uh so i was very fortunate i got like sort of classical training in strategy as a as a consultant originally it's like years and years ago so there's a bunch of frameworks and things all of that is just helps my what i do is effectively structured thinking that's my thing mm. that i'm sort of good at as it were i think um and so it's bringing structure to problems and and, and thinking and to do that um, I had a great teacher, a chap called Fred Pellard, um, who still sort of teaches strategy in lots of different organisations today. Um, hi, Fred. Uh, and I haven't done his podcast. Is that going to be awkward? I think, yeah, he's definitely going to he's going to have a go at me about that. <laughs> so Fred is an amazing guy and he teaches strategy as effectively giving you lots of different tools in your bag to apply to problems. And it's not about one tool fits all. And his approach is to rapidly apply those different frameworks to different problems and see what fits in terms of how it helps you or the business you're in actually understand what, what they're in. So my personal favorite is a thing called Kim's Happy Line, which comes from Blue Ocean Strategy. And what that really is, is effectively, uh, it has a visualization to it. I'm a visual guy, so that helps. But you rank the most important things to a customer base. Um, uh, and you then draw this happy line, which is basically a straight line, but with a kicker on, on the end of it. And the rule there is effectively put more of your resources into prioritizing the top three things that your customers value mm. and don't put more time and resources into the things which are just sort of like hygiene factors effectively. And the example case for that is when Lexus entered the luxury car market against Mercedes and BMW and others. And their insight was that the people that are buying luxury cars don't actually value how fast it goes and how well it goes around corners. They actually value sort of comfort, quietness in the car after... Um, 
after-sales service and all those sorts of things. They put loads of resources into that and less resources into performance and handling and all those other things. So that's my personal favorite. Um, when you apply that to say, we did that with back in the day with UEFA and women's football, women's football versus men's football, you actually see they have different happy lines attached to them. And so actually they're complementary in a, in, a, in a different sort of way in that sense. Yeah. So that's my personal favorite. That really resonates in what I do working with customers around defining what kind of digital products they want and yeah. the long list of requirements. And I think that really resonates when it's like, pick your top three. Yeah. That's what we can do, especially for a launch. It's so important to prioritize and, and trade off. Yeah. And actually pick the ones that matter to customers mm. rather than which matter to your management or whatever yeah. else. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just to build on that, uh, perhaps, and, and your role as uh, a chief strategy officer, and I'm interested in that job role and how it has, over the past, what, 5, 10, maybe 15 years, become one of the roles within sports organisations in particular, whether it's teams or leagues. What what do you put that down to? And this elevation of strategy to being you know, very much represented at the top table. How does that sort of uh, work out within your your current role at, at ATP Media? Uh, so I can only really speak from sort of personal experience, but I guess it reflects uh, a broader sort of professionalization of the sports industry that's sort of been happening sort of 10 plus years or so. Um, and is sort of the, the pace of that is only sort of quickening. So strategy as a function or a thing or a thing that management and leadership understand and recognize has been uh has sort of grown in um sort of sort of understanding if you see what i mean i think the nature of what that role really depends between the different businesses and how it's then articulated within there within our business we are uh focused on like executing outcomes we're a commercial focused business so it's not about hey just do some thinking and um th those sorts of things so um, but in other organizations, it might well be more of more of that side of things. The, the other role that it can be called, and it's it's not for various reasons, is sort of transformation, because transformation is a scary word. Um, and you then go, well, that actually runs across the whole business, but how does the rest of the business operate day to day? So in many organizations, I'd expect it's actually a transformation role um, rather than just a, an ivory tower thinking role. Okay. It's... um really tricky sometimes outside looking in to understand um, the impact of strategy and strategic thinking on those outcomes. With ATP Media in mind, obviously there's a, been a huge amount of exposure around the partnership with Netflix and the impact that that has on ATP Media and tennis in general. Could we dig into the, the detail and understand how you were involved and how strategy was involved around the partnership with Netflix and also the the execution afterwards as it relates to those outcomes you're looking at. Yeah, so um, in terms of looking at looking at tennis, one of the sort of the the lines that we have is that sort of tennis. It's a, it's a one funnel approach. It's not my tennis, your tennis, um, because of the way that uh, sort of tennis is structured. There isn't sort of calendar competition between the slams and between the tours. They sort of work in uh, work in harmony in that sense. So. Wimbledon isn't selling against US Open. Uh, likewise, the tour isn't selling against sort of uh, Australia or otherwise. I'd imagine 
um, everybody wants to be bigger, but collectively, if the whole thing is bigger, then mm. it all sort of uh, rising tides lifts all boats, that sort of thing. And so looking at it from a, a sort of a one funnel point of view, there are certain things that you can do, activity you can do at the very top of that funnel. And one of the best things over the last five years or so is to um, put yourself in a meaningful way on a on a streaming platform. Um, and so, obviously, and that's not a searing piece of insight by by any means at all. Um, and so, looking at the at the sort of the the, the Netflix deal, um, I was fortunate enough to know the the box to box guys from my time in football. We uh, we hosted a screening of the Ronaldo documentary in Moscow um, back in the day, uh, the 2018 World Cup. And Paul Martin, uh, who's one of the sort of exec uh, producers on that, came over to came over to Moscow for that. Um, and we sort of uh, got got chatting, made a connection there. And then when I went into into ATP Media, uh, I had a call with Paul, and there was a colleague, buddy from Copper 90, who was working with Paul at the time as well, and said, "Hey, can we do a, a drive to survive for for tennis?" And I said, yep, that would be great, but we need to know if that's of any interest to Netflix or not before we mm. run it up the up the tree, as it were. So um, they then came back in, in February of, I think it was 2020 um, uh, or 21 probably, and said, yes, Netflix are interested, but only if they can have the whole sport. They don't want an athlete. They don't want a league. Mm. They want the whole sport if, if we can get it. So... We then rolled that up through the, the ATP tour, through the WTA tour, and then through to the to the slams as well. Um, sort of the the real partner on the slams side is a guy called Ugo Valenci, who uh, works across all of the slams. And collectively, and it really was a collective across all of those entities, was to, to sort of bring that together and make it happen. And the the way that it did happen was really around one, it was a unique sort of moment in time in that you've got Box to box, the production company that have done Drive to Survive, um, uh, Oscar winners for for Senna, oh no, uh, for Amy, but um, sort of notable for, for Senna and other other sort of landmark pieces of work, and then Netflix, which was a total green space for every um, every entity in tennis. So rather than if you say, well, what about um, Discovery or what about ESPN or what about Amazon or others, there. Are tennis isn't sort of unified in that sense so someone might already be on amazon and have an advantage versus others that, mm. that aren't and so netflix was genuine green space for everybody and so um that really was the opportunity uh and again with a with a netflix and with box to boxes track record it's this idea of a returning franchise because uh an all or nothing is a fantastic franchise on uh, on amazon but you have it's one and done, um, uh, and so from a, a tennis point of view, it's really about how how can we create an ongoing narrative around it, um, and so that was one of those things which on paper it's pretty obvious in terms of we should be doing something like this. Who yeah. should we go and do it with? But really, it comes down to to execution, um, and again, one of those sort of key pieces of it is getting everybody on the bus, and it not being about my idea, your idea. It's like, this is our idea and our opportunity hmm. rather than, oh, Nick's leading this or Hugo's leading this. It's like, this is a collective. Um, uh, and particularly in tennis, which is fragmented, it has to be a collective um, in order to get that get that done. And, and how are those arguments won in terms of making it our idea? As you said, it wasn't the sort of searing insight that we have a top of the funnel opportunity and let's go and approach Netflix. It sounded like it was quite organic yes. by your relationships. But when it came to then 
right, how do we get everybody behind this idea? How were those arguments won and how as a strategy team did you help drive that forward? Uh, so one is we didn't frame them as arguments. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, first thing. But um, it was um, it, it's nothing more than getting getting people on the bus, spending time with people, um, understanding concerns, and it's just mm. it's a it's a it's a man marking game in that sense. Mm. It's and again, it's not. Uh, if there was one other thing from sort of that sort of strategy playbook to it is understanding how people take on information and how, how they respond to things. So some people are visual, some people are oral, some people are data-led, some people are um, uh, sort of sort of variants across those different pieces to it. And so from that, it's understanding how people want to receive this information. How do they collectively make decisions? That's different between, say, Wimbledon versus to, say, uh, US Open versus to, say, um, the, the tours as well. So it's um, it's packaging the information they need in order to make the right decision um, and helping them on that process and not being... Um, you can't say sort of there's, there's no carrot and stick other than the sort of the shrinking window of opportunity, which is if we go through all of this work and it took... Uh, conversations started in February, deal was signed day before Christmas sort of thing. And then filming started in Melbourne 10 days later. Uh, it took six months to get the right meeting with Netflix with all of the right people involved. And then we had an eight-party legal agreement that took five months. Okay. Uh, and so just the fact that Netflix is obviously one turn. And then when it came back, there were seven parties on the tennis side that had to be to go through it. And again, that just takes time. And that takes management, uh, sort of people's skills. Sounds like the doing the deal might be worth its own documentary uh, of probably its own. Probably not. No? Uh, probably not. Although, <laughs> the legal uh, episode may be a little bit dry. Yeah, um, although uh, the, 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 the lawyers um, did a phenomenal job and credit to all of the, 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 the lawyers across all of the, the tennis entities is that they understood what the purpose of this was. Yeah. Um, uh, this wasn't a regular broadcast deal or contract or otherwise so the tremendous value created by them i know they'd all um one in particular would definitely like to have his name as the first name in the credits but um, that hasn't been possible for various different reasons we don't control the credits um but uh no they did a they did a phenomenal job and that comes again back to the execution side of it it's a team game and you've to that example you need lawyers that are commercial and sort of sound and, and understand really where you're trying to get to rather than trying to win and trying to win an argument as it were So after the the success of of Breakpoint driving global awareness, I'm sure really good viewership numbers, new fans um, coming to to ATP and media and, and tennis in general. What next for you then? You've got that that reach awareness. What next for you as ATP Media in in that strategy? And so the sort of the obviously us as ATP Media, it's us as uh, as tennis effectively in in that sense. But uh, what we wanted to do was to get Netflix ready. Um, what was our sort of phrase uh, sort of around that? And we were um, very lucky in the, the generosity of um, Ellie Norman, uh, who was a CMO at Formula One. She's now at Manchester United. We had a bunch of chats with her and said, so 
Um, what did you plan for? What didn't you plan for? Um, what went as you expected? What what didn't you do? If you were mm. to do it again, what what would you be, be ready for? And so we got a bunch of her notes effectively uh, to say, okay, how do we get ready for this? An, an influx of new audience that are brand new to, um, to, to the sport. How do you welcome them in rather than sort of suddenly they're faced with a, a ranking table and sort of super nuanced sort of um, uh, information around the game. So that was very helpful for us. And that enabled us to create on the tours side across WTA and ATP, sort of a collective approach to, to getting ready for that new audience, whether that's through content, whether that's through platforms and sort of other pieces too. But I think more broadly, and this isn't uh, a one and done is that sort of has to start, but it has has to grow. And so mm. the kind what it what we used it for was actually a very helpful tool to do the things that we should be doing anyway, which mm. is like, do you have a collective approach to customer data? It's like there wasn't a CDP, for example, across the the tennis entities. It's like, let's do that. Yeah. Um, uh, let's actually think about that sort of federated approach to sort of CRM and those other sort of pieces to it as well. So, um, and that doesn't happen overnight, but it enabled uh, to be sort of at that forcing factor to doing the right things that we should be thinking about collectively. There's tons more stuff that we could and should be doing, but um, you have to start somewhere um, uh, and sort of build from there. Where does strategy fall down, Nick? And and do you have any experiences of moments where it hasn't quite worked? Yes. I've probably got too many to too many to mention, <laughs> of course. I mean, the there's lots of professional strategy consultants who can tell a league or a team or whatever what they should do, but they haven't done it. Um uh, and there's a, a hundred and one reasons why they haven't done it. One of it might be capital, access to capital. One of it might be political will or, or need to do it. Um, the other third is probably sort of execution and ability to execute and sort of uh, and do those sorts of things. So it falls down on a sort of uh, any of those three sort of combinations sort of uh, within there. From a sort of a uh, yeah a, a personal point of view, it's really about building that understanding within the organization, the partner organizations about why we really need to do this and why we need to do this now. Within our organization, um, we're funded by our shareholders. There's no sort of external sort of capital in there. And so we need to really show how this is going to drive their businesses um, and drive their businesses directly. And so, which is great because there's a real onus on uh, transforming um, their their businesses through through our business, and so for, we're very fortunate in that our shareholders are super plugged in and receptive to that, and understand the the need to to grow and develop their offerings. And because of the nature of tennis being, if you think across those sixty four tournaments, there's sixty four identical operational stacks effectively, and so it's the economics of building that separately across each of those doesn't doesn't stand up, and us. Uh, in terms of ATP media already being created as a, a centralized sort of commercial entity on behalf of their media rights also works as a centralized commercial entity for content and media as a as a delivery and sort of service function. And the other piece within there too, um, I say this to suppliers all the time, I'm not sure they, they really like the answer, but is uh, in football, and I know it's from, from my past, it's a much bigger market and you can build a profitable business 
in sort of, in my case, like in the armpit of football, that bit they couldn't really scratch. Um, in tennis, it's not as big as football. And so we have to be way, uh, way more tuned in to the sort of the, the margin economics within the sort of the, the operational stack of the businesses. And so in football's case, we were making a healthy margin delivering services into a football club on behalf of their sponsors and others. And the, the club was happy with that and we were happy with it too, um, or, or sort of rights holders around it. In tennis, there just isn't the margin to be leaking that margin to lots of external third parties within there, which is why mm. a more centralized approach is is really sort of key and required. That doesn't mean we build everything in-house. We work with strategic partners across all parts of our business, but we just have to be where it's smart to build the internal capability and sort of retain that margin so that we can pass that margin on to our shareholders and their businesses. And in that sense, we always say the most important PL is actually our shareholders' PL, mm. not ours in that sense, because we're trying to be that commercial engine on their behalf. Just going back to the first part of your answer there around uh, consultants and outside of sport consultants coming in, what is it? specifically you think that that group of people because we've all seen the rise of consultants over the past few years what aren't they getting about the sports and entertainment industries is the question what aren't they getting yeah um so i can't speak for all of them but um uh i know a bunch of them and they there's nothing much there's not much that they don't get i think um to say it's stuff they aren't getting there's one chap I know who's managing partner of the sports practice for a, uh, a sort of um, uh, a top three consulting firm, strategy consulting firm. He totally gets it. There's not like, oh, you don't quite get this. They, they get the whole thing. They understand the whole thing. Um, it's really about they're not masters of the, the destiny of the decision makers that they're working with. So I don't think... It, I wouldn't characterize them as not getting anything. I think they absolutely do get it and they understand the frustrations across the sort of the chain within there. It's their it's not their decision as to whether they do those things or execute them in uh, in in the ways that they would. Um so there's tremendous value that those uh sorts of professionals can bring to businesses. I think where there are consulting firms that have large um sort of operational execution arms to them and I can sort of say this when when I was at sort of Deloitte in their sort of strategy team, strategy doesn't make lots of money for a consulting firm. An SAP finance transformation project does. And mm -hmm. so actually that's really kind of what, what they want to get into is the transformation agenda, not actually the thinking piece. And so actually when you look at those sort of big three strategy houses who are actually focused on more of that front end stuff, there isn't anything they don't really get would, would be how I would describe it. Um, that said, about 40% of McKinsey's business is actually the operational side as well because they realise that it's hard just to sell strategy projects. But um, I don't think there's much they don't get. Hmm. I think that's what will be interesting to see as the sports industry grows, right? Are they then targeting the operations or are they understanding that there's a bit more nuance and the sports industry's quite funky when you talk about those three things of why yeah. strategy doesn't work? It'll be interesting to see what they what they do. Yeah, and within there, it comes back to the um, the sort of there are very in sports there are a bunch of things that are common across loads of different companies. Say whether that's CRM or customer understanding yeah. and sort of marketing those sorts of things. There's a bunch of things that are very specific, like sort of production, live content delivery, mm. sort of concurrent street, all those sorts of bits where you actually need 
sort of out and out specialists and obviously like Delta Trade, for example, built a fantastic business around that sort of very hard to just um, build a, a proxy for that. Likewise, you look at say a WSC and what the sort of this sort of technology mm. they deliver, that isn't something where um, I don't know Accenture, but I don't think Accenture could build a WSC in a year would be my sort of uh, uneducated guess around Accenture's capability. So there are very specific, nothing against Accenture. There are other consultants are available. Um, uh, there are very sort of specific deep technologies that have been developed around the sports industry that are sort of specific to it. Yeah. I think it's interesting when you talk about what consult external consultants, non-sports specific consultants get or don't get. It's interesting when you're talking about the impact of structured thinking certainly from my exposure to them i think that's that's brilliant when a sports organization doesn't have the opportunity to employ a head of strategy that's really important but as you said it's in that executional point of view that's where i think the sports industry needs a lot of help to transform their businesses right yeah and to that point it's to really appreciate that whether you can see it or not uh your sort of sport is on fire um from sort of a bunch of different sort of angles and it's whether whether that's sort of the attention economy whether mm. that's sort of the influx of sort of private equity a new source of capital it's like um whether it's sort of presenting itself uh, as clearly as you like it's like there are sort of major structural sort of challenges um and back to that piece around sort of the 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 transformation job and the way that we characterize it at sort of the ATP is um our principal customer types being the nature of their businesses is fundamentally changing from mm. just a cable TV model to actually a streaming plus model. And the way that we therefore understand that is um, it's our job to be the best partner we can mm. to our customers to help them transition the principal platforms through which they reach their customers. Rather than just saying, hey guys, sorry, we've delivered this world feed and all these different flavors. It's your job to figure out the rest. It's like, well, what transformation is your business undergoing? Mm. How are you trying to move those customers? What do you need? How can we make sure our product best fits what, what you need, if you see what I mean? And that really comes back to that understanding piece as the fundamental, which never stops, which you have to um, uh, understand the nature of your customers. Uh, and they're all different market by market because the markets move at different rates. So um, yeah, that makes it challenging and fun and exciting. We've talked a lot in this series about the the need for flexibility within strategic thinking. It's something, Max, that you you talk about a lot. And so I wonder how in your role in an organization, you know, a sports media organization essentially, how far ahead are you thinking? Is it is it one year? Is it five years? Is it even worth thinking beyond that in terms of, you know, a roadmap and all the things you need to do to put a strategy in place? So we um, we have quite a sort of a structure around it. So we write five-year plans every sort of five years and we have um, uh, annual budgets and we have three-year budgets and we're very structured around all of that because that really helps you cascade the execution in. There's no sort of secret sauce about that. It's about all of the sort of the um the sort of the sort of management structures and checks and balances that you would hope so we do that sort of structure to it and that was there before i before i even joined um and so that helps you set those longer term sort of pieces around it the other thing that is uh probably helpful from a 
uh, and specific to a media rights point of view is the nature of the cycles. So we might have a five plus five deal in that territory. Mm -hmm. We might be on a, a six year deal in across that territory. And so you're able to effectively sort of pick your um, focuses according to when you're going to market in, in different territories. So you can be pretty structured around how you, how you think about that. Do you have a sort of Friday afternoon hour blocked off to think even more long-term than that, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ahead? Uh, the real blue sky thinking, that's what, that's what, I'm, that's what I'm after. Yeah, um, I, I'd love to say it was every Friday between two till three, but um, uh, and yeah, I, I drink Lucky Saint more than I drink alcoholic beers, so I guess that's sort of uh, able to do that in, in the right sort of environment. Um, but yes, there is, and there's so much to do in sport, obviously, and in in tennis, which in certain areas is ten years behind European football in in lots of different areas. Um, that you can do those things, but you also need to methodically get through steps one through five. There are lots of things where uh, you need to start the conversation and the relationships and the visibility of things that you want to do in three years' time, but you can't just suddenly step up in the end of year two and go, right, we're going to do this next year, because to that point, you've got to get people on the bus. And so um, you do need to um, start conversations way ahead of time. And likewise, again, th there's a, a project we've been working on this year where when we then took it out and tested it with our tournaments, it's like, we're a couple of years too early for this. They're not ready for this. It's not just a, a budget cycle thing. It's like, we're just too early. It's fine for these other sports over here, but it's too early for our guys. So let's just put it on ice for a year um, and, and we'll come back to it. So you, but I think looking 30, 40 years out, particularly on a, we work on a market by market approach, isn't going to drive a ton of value, but there are fundamental principles where you know that's going to put you in good stead 30 or 40 years out um, in terms of uh, being able to invest in the right things um, uh, and capabilities. Well, well, we'll book you in, Nick, for 40 years time to come back and uh, see how yeah. see how it's all going. Absolutely. Um, in the meantime... On the metaverse. Yeah. Very much on Perfect. the metaverse. Yeah. yeah. Um, couple of final questions for you and there are a couple of regular questions and uh, we've slightly uh, you know branched out in terms of one of those questions max around uh, not not just your favorite book of choice um favorite podcast oh, this good. one not included there you go oh yeah very good uh it would be uh sort of businesses podcast would be acquired it's fantastic the nfl one the nba one the Walmart one, the LVMH one, the Porsche one, and listening to the Nike one, they're fantastic for long car journeys and stuff like that. Um, I even got my kids to listen to the Walmart one. They actually got they actually got oh. into that, and they're only sort of eight and nine. When you say you got your kids to listen, did you just have it on it in the car on. and refuse it to turn it off? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Non-sports one would be smartless because it's just silly and fun. Um, uh, and my sort of uh, book of or if the anybody. And I don't, this isn't just a sort of a strategy thing, but um, when sort of hiring and building teams, the book I try and get everybody to read is a thing called High Output Management by Andy Grove, the founder of um, Intel. Because um, that is a book which isn't about a fad or a happy line or a this or a this tool. It's basically how to run a business and make decisions um, written by a guy that built Intel and everybody should read it. It's out of print in the UK, but every time I go to the US, I buy a couple of copies from a bookshop. Um, but everybody should read it. It's only about 180 pages and everybody should read it every year. Brilliant. We will add those to the list. And then final question. Um, 
linked to something we were talking about earlier, right? It's difficult to see the work that happens behind the scenes um, and kind of pinpoint the impact of strategy. But who do you think in the sports and entertainment industry is developing strategy well and then executing well? Uh, I think that back to that sort of proof point, uh, Formula One would be an obvious one in terms of we want to grow a North American mm. audience. And so whether that's through, um, it's not just drive to survive, obviously that's one of the most visible bits that they've done that. But when you look at the outcomes of it, Media rights values have grown from what was it, five million to ninety million dollars or so. They've gone from one race there to three races. They've gone from attendances at Austin GP went from a quarter of a million to over four hundred thousand. It's sort of all of these measurable outcomes of that succeeding. So that would be an easy, an easy pick. Very good. Uh, we've had F one before, but I think it's uh, you know it's a. Uh, a good choice and a very uh, timely choice nick pleasure to uh, have you with us uh, thank you for your time and continue good luck at atp media thank you for having me